Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. This time inside of two hours, a lavish mansion seethed with suspicion, a sealed cabin filled with gas in an artist's retreat, and a corpse on the floor. All because one man was too good-looking to be true to anyone. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Lady Killer. The longer I sat in my office with my feet up on the desk and thought about it, the more convinced I became. Paul Niles was unquestionably the handsomest man I'd ever seen. He had a face that belonged on a Greek god, only his features were better, more finely chiseled. They looked as though they'd been molded out of alabaster from a blueprint by some inspired genius. And the classic side view he presented made the great profile show up like a bowl full of shredded wheat. In fact, the guy was much too good to be true in more ways than one, which had been my original impression of Niles when I'd first met him, just two hours ago at the corner of Sunset and Coenga. And at his insistence, had driven him around the quieter streets of Hollywood in my car while he tried to hire me. He was scared stiff. But that was all he would admit to, and as he talked, I wondered what it would be like to have a face like that. It must become quite a problem. Women cluttering up your life. Marlowe, you're not listening to me. Unless you help me, I, I'm going to be killed. Soon, tomorrow, tonight, maybe in the next ten minutes, I, I must have protection. From what? Who's after you? A girl. Her name is Nora Kirby. She's threatened my life, and now she's here in town. She actually intends to go through with it. I found out where she's staying. I went there to talk to her, but she was out. Why is killing you so important to her? Well, I I don't even know for sure. It's, it's something ridiculous. Mm. Nora Kirby obviously doesn't think so. Let's have it, Niles. Why? I, I, I can't tell you that. I see. Also, I suppose you don't want to take this to the police where it belongs, and you can't give me the reason for that either. Yes, I came to you because I need private help, and I'm willing to pay well for it. Now, you don't have to concern yourself with the reasons. Simply see that Nora doesn't get to me. Now, here, as a starter, here's $200 for just that. Keep it. I only accept money from the people I work for. You mean you won't help me? I just want to know where I'm going before I start. Now, wait. You don't can you get un- off here. Don't you understand? My, my, my life's in danger. I'm scared. Not enough to loosen your tongue, any. Here, this is as far as I go. But tell me one thing first, just for laughs. What business are you in? Why, I, I'm a composer. I write music. Mm-hmm. The way you said it, it's either a front or a hobby. How do you get your dough? I have friends, wealthy ones, who have faith in me. And that's more than I can say for Marlowe. So long, Mr. Niles. Go on. Out. All right. But here, at least take my card, and please call if you change your mind. I, I'm desperate, Marlowe. I'll pay you even more if you'll only... Goodbye, Mr. Niles. was the way I'd left it two hours ago at eight. And I'd spent the time in between trying to referee a tug-of-war in progress with the feeling I had that I'd been stuffy on one end and my undernourished bank account on the other. And was slowly but surely getting no place. So when the break came, I grabbed at it. Hello, Marlowe speaking. Marlowe, this is Paul Niles again. 
Oh? I've uh, thought it over. I'll tell you everything if that's the only way, because I've got to have help before it's too late. That's better. Where are you? In my studio, 3893 Avenida del Sol. 3893. That's off Coldwater Canyon, isn't it? Yes. Now get over here right away, will you? I... Wait a minute, Marlo. There's someone here. Somebody just came in now. What? Niles? Who's there? Who is it? Nora, is that you? Oh! Niles! Niles! Niles' phone went dead. I hung up, ran to my car, and was headed for Coldwater Canyon before I stopped to think of what I'd heard on the telephone could very easily have been bait for a patsy routine. Because I had nothing more to go on now than before except Niles' promise to tell all. That I'd got no further than gunshots. But I was already well on one easy way to find out, so I corkscrewed my way over the mountains to Avenida del Sol and followed it to number 3893, which was a straight-up driveway etched narrowly into the hill face that ended on a gravel shelf just big enough for the redwood and glass studio. A generous helping of imported jungle for landscaping in a circular parking space. As my headlights slashed across the tangle of overhanging trees in the center, they trapped the figure of a woman running. She stopped, crouched, and looked back into the glare like a cat does, then darted for the darkness again. But I caught her at the corner of the house. <gasps> Just a minute, baby, not so fast on the curves. Let me go. Let me go. Not until we've been properly introduced and had a chance to talk a lot of things over, Nora. Nora. Yeah, Nora Kirby, girl with murder on her mind. Oh, no, no, you got the wrong person. My name's not Nora, it's Lynn. I don't know anyone like that. Lynn what? Lynn Horton. Lynn Horton. Mm-hmm. Okay, Lynn Horton. What's inside the gush is so panicky you can hardly stand up? Is it Paul Niles? Yes. I gotta, I gotta get away from here. And it actually happened, huh? He was shot. Is he I, dead? I don't know. I think so. But how did you know about it? Who are you? Name's Marlowe. Come on, Lynn Horton. Let's take another look. No. No, I, I, I couldn't bear it. Mm. Can't see him through the window. It means you must have been inside. Inside? No. No, I wasn't. Now, look, baby. You're too jittery to try to lie. Let's have the key. Come on, give. Oh. That's better. Right. After you. Go on inside. Now, where is it? Yeah. Oh, Paul. Come on, Lynn. Come over here away from me. I, I can't believe it. I can't. What's your connection with him? I, I was just a friend. I tried to help him with his music. Mm-hmm. The price on the merchandise you're wearing, you must be one of those mentioned. What do you mean? But you got dough and it shows. We'll skip that. Assuming you didn't kill him, you must have had some reason for showing up here tonight. What was it? Well, I only wanted to... Did you hear that? Someone's outside. Yeah, get the light. Yeah. There, on the terrace, something moved down there. I'm going out to see who it is. And listen, there's no such thing as welcome visitor just now, baby. So you stay here, understand, and don't budge. I felt my way out the door, down the stone steps toward where we'd seen the movement along the wall of the far end of the terrace. But there was no sound, nothing moved. Whoever had made the noise had gotten away clean. So I headed back to the house, and that's when I heard it. I started after it with my shin against the first rock garden. Stop me cold. Ooh. Instead, I, I listened to her drive away. Called myself a few unpleasant names and concluded that Lynn Horton, or whatever her real name was, had been quite as scared as she acted. After I limped inside, turned on the light, and reached for the phone, I stopped at the word Nora above a pretty girl's picture on a newspaper clipping sticking out of Paul Niles' pocket. It carried a New York dateline and said that Nora Kirby, convicted of manslaughter in a traffic accident, had been released after serving three years. At the bottom of the story, scrawled in ink, was the message three years for something I didn't do to get something I couldn't have. 
It's not fair. Paul, I'll be seeing you. It was signed Nora. I picked up the phone again, and a few minutes later, Detective Lieutenant Matthews at Homicide was up to date. Okay, I'll be right out. Now, you say this girl, Nora Kirby, did it, Marlowe? I said Paul Niles was expecting her to, and it looks like she did. They looked, there's another angle, though, the woman who just beat it away from here. The one who called herself Lynn Barton? Yeah, yeah. There's that somebody else who was snooping around outside, too. Who also got away from you. You're doing real well, Marlowe. Oh, now, wait a minute. Will you see this joint, you'll understand. Besides, I'm in this for curiosity only. Now my paycheck got murdered, remember? And furthermore, I... Yo, I never have matches when I want them. What'd you say? I said I'm looking for some matches. No, here's some. These are the strangest matches I've ever seen. Well, what about them? I got a velvet cover on them. So what? A velvet book of matches. Mm. Hey, hey, Matthews, do you ever hear the name Negrotto? Negrotto? Yeah. Uh, Sure. Abel Negrotto. He's a big name in the music publishing business. Made most of his fortune on records. Lives in Beverly Hills. You know, I got a dandy hunch. I'm going to go have a talk with Mr. Negrotto, Lieutenant, okay? On one condition. Be careful what you say, Marlowe. And uh, keep in touch. Good evening. You aren't Mr. Negrotto, are you? No, I'm not. I'm Garrett Horton. Mr. Negrotto is busy. Horton? Yes. Something wrong with that? No. No, it's a more common name than I suspected, that's all. Will you tell Mr. Negrotto I'd like to see him for a few minutes on an urgent matter? Name's Marlowe. Perhaps you didn't understand me. Mr. Negrotto and I are in the middle of a business conference. We can't be disturbed. No, you can't be disturbed. Well, look, Mr. Horton, a man was murdered tonight, and one trail leads from the corpse straight to this front door. Either Negrotto talks to me here now or later at police headquarters. You decide. Well, if that's where you feel, come in. You're an officer? Not exactly. I'm a private detective. I see. Well, follow me, follow me. He led the way through what looked like the outer lobby of the Taj Mahal and down a silk-padded corridor to a set of carved doors that would have fit any roundhouse in the country. When we walked in, a man glanced up from a stack of papers and with a pair of eyes that belonged on a shark, did his best to look a hole through me. Horton introduced us. This is Mr. Marlowe, private detective. Uh, Mr. Negrotto, I'm looking for a girl named Nora Kirby in connection with the murder of one Paul Niles tonight. She either committed the murder or knows who did because she was there and saw it. And what exactly brings you to my house? Well, I found this book of matches near the door of the dead man's studio. I, I think it's yours. It is. Go on. Any idea how it got there? None, whatever. And until you mentioned their names, I'd never heard of either Nora Kirby or Paul Niles. How about you, Mr. Horton? No, I'm afraid not. Oh, uh, there's my wife. Oh? I'm sure you'll want to give her the third degree, too. Now, just a moment. Uh, Lynn. Lynn, darling. Come in here, please. Uh, Lynn, uh, this is Mr. Marlowe. How do you do, Mr. Marlowe? I'm glad to know you, I'm sure. Thanks. I'm pleased to meet you, Mrs. Negrotto. Your brother and I have been trying to convince Marlowe here that we didn't commit murder tonight. But he thinks we did because he found this book of our matches near the corpse. Can you explain it, my dear? Why, no. I, I can't imagine. The man's I... name was Niles, Lynn. Paul Niles. Mean anything? No, nothing. How about Nora Kirby? I don't think I've ever heard the name before. Well, Marlowe, that would seem to t- take care of the book of matches. Not completely. It was found at the house of the dead man, remember? We've had hundreds of these made up. 
pass them out freely. I, uh, I think you've taken up quite enough of our time with this absurd business model. So now I'll ask you to leave. I'll show you out. Don't I'll bother. Leave. Now listen to Grotto and listen closely. I've been taking it easy so far, but somebody in this room is absolutely certain how those matches got out there. I know that for a fact. And I'm a private detective. Don't forget. So if you suddenly remember something that needs talking over, I'll be in my office for one hour, but not one single minute longer. Good night, all. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, every Sunday afternoon, CBS brings you two outstanding programs of music. Gems from the great composers played by the symphonette and the sweet, memorable songs of the outstanding modern composers and semi-classicists sung by the choral ears. Each program is designed especially for fine Sunday afternoon listening. Hear both the symphonette and choral ears this Sunday afternoon on most of these same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Lady Killer. When I started back to my office on Cahuenga, I figured that there was an even chance that the double talk I'd left in my weight might stack up in the center of the Negrado living room floor like so much dynamite, which, if touched off by the book of matches, could cause an explosion that would jar loose a few facts about the lives and loves of the late Paul Niles. Facts that would make finding Nora Kirby and clearly understanding her motives something less than impossible. And 20 minutes later, when I was slouched behind my desk and listening to the staccato report of a pair of high heels clicking sharply toward my door, I had a hunch that my theory of violent detonation was not just wishful thinking. When the door opened without the formality of the knock, that hunch turned a sure thing because the visitor was the not-quite-lady called Lynn. And before she could speak her piece, the phone rang, and sure thing graduated to cinch. It was another negrotto, the one named Abel. Uh, Marlowe, I suppose it's stupid of me to make this call, but frankly, your visit here has left me curious. Uh, you have a minute? Yeah, I think so. Hold a wire, will you? I need a light. Be with you in a second, Mrs. Negrotto. All right, but what I have to say is important, Marlowe, so make it fast, will you? Just as fast as I can. I don't think your husband has much to say to me. Husband? Mm-hmm. That's Abel you're talking to? Yeah. Now, do you mind handing me those matches there? Thanks. Hello. <laughs> Sorry to have kept you waiting, Mr. Negrotto. I never seem to be able to hang on to matches. Uh, that's odd. You apparently did all right on that score tonight, Marlowe. Is that the reason for the call? Uh, more or less. Marlowe, uh, you know as well as I do that servants, getter, anyone who's ever been in my home could have left those matches near the body of that Paul Niles. That's right, Mr. Negrotto, anybody. Which also includes you, your wife, your brother-in-law, and others in the family I've still to meet. What's your point, please? I'm in a hurry. Very well. Marlowe, I called to find out if you're holding anything back from me. If this murder concerns the Negratos beyond the appearance of those matches. I can't say. Uh, because there is something. Because I don't know. Anything else? Uh, no, there isn't. A... Uh, yes, Marlowe, there is. Oh? To be honest, I admire the way you handle the situation. What's your address? I may have work for you soon, tonight. Thanks, Mr. Negrotto, but I don't think I'll be available. At least not till I get through with the job I'm on. Which is what? Handling dynamite while I play with books of matches. Good night, sir. What did he want, Marlowe? Among other things, an express desire to hire me. To do what? Report on you, I suppose. He didn't say. 
makes you think that's what he wanted? Addition, Mrs. Negrotto. A rich old husband, a beautiful but bored young wife, and an unemployed Adonis always add up the same way. Also, you were here in my office just about Clinch's things, not to mention your presence near the corpse, the key you use. And I've heard enough, Marlowe. Look, I didn't want to get mixed up with Paul. I couldn't help myself. I swear I couldn't. He was different, Marlowe. Handsome. More charm than I've ever known in anyone. Yeah, a real lady killer, I know. What are you getting at? Just this. I'll pay you any price you name. Only don't tell Abel that I had anything to do with Niles. He's a jealous man, Marlowe. Insanely jealous. If he knew about us, he'd... Kill Mrs. Negrano? I don't know. Marlo, what do you want? Right now, everything you know about Nora Kirby. But I've never heard of her before tonight. You're lying. No, I'm not. It's the truth. Now, now what do you want? Nothing. Good night. You, you mean you won't say anything? Oh, Marlo, I, I don't know how to thank you. Don't try also, don't get mixed up about me, baby. The fact that I won't blackmail you doesn't mean I don't like you. And the door, Mrs. Negrotto, leave it open on your way out, will you? I'm expecting another visitor. No, my husband. No, just another man. The anchor man on the triumvirate I once left some dynamite with. I won't bother explaining that. Goodbye, Mrs. Negrotto. Mm -hmm. You great, big, beautiful doll. Oh... My name, Mr. Horton. I've been waiting for you. Why, Mr. Marlowe? Something I said or didn't say at the house? Not exactly. It's more a matter of intuition, high explosives, and the fact that both your brother-in-law and sister have already paid their respects. Now, what can I do for you? I'm not at all sure. It's the first time. I'm only here because I noticed something very strange about the way my sister looked at you when you spoke of the murder of this Paul Niles. When she left the house shortly after you, did I follow her here? All of which makes the next question, why, Mr. Horton? Because I don't trust her. And more important, every penny I own is tied up in a business venture of mine that her husband is backing. She originally met Abel through me. And if she should in some way be in trouble, the kind of trouble that her husband wouldn't put up with, I might suffer for it in the long run right along with her. Uh-huh. And uh, by the trouble, Mr. Horton, you're referring to something specific, I think. I am. Lynn has had a very... Uh, well, a very mixed-up background, Marlowe, so it's entirely feasible that in some way she's connected with this Nora you spoke of who killed Paul Niles. You mean as an accomplice or even as accessory before or after the fact? <laughs> Pretty thoughts about your own sister. Which I can't help. I doubt that you have anything to worry about, Mr. Horton. However, I will say this, that if Nora Kirby hadn't gotten a Paul Niles, sooner or later you would have had plenty to worry about. You mean that... I mean that now's a great time for you to go home and sit on your investment. All is well, Mr. Horton, for the time being. The moment after Horton left the office, I came to the hollow conclusion that although my little bombshell had exploded on schedule, damages had been light and had jarred loose neither fact nor fancy about the late Paul Niles and much less about the elusive Miss Nora Kirby. So my next move had to be a second trip to Avenida del Sol and a report to Detective Lieutenant Matthews, which is what I was about to do when it came from someplace outside, long and loud. <laughs> corridor outside my door, then bellowed down the single flight of stairs to the street where in the half-light of a distant lamppost, I saw the shadowed figure of a girl slip behind my car and dart toward a storefront nearby. I started after her and stopped at a noise behind me, which was a... Oh, mistake! Oh. Oh. Hey, Junior. 
it's you. You're the one who screamed? Screamed? Honey, you have got it bad. Listen, oh. this is just Sally. Hello, Sally. <laughs> Relax, honey. You're, you're lucky a cop didn't come along first. Being drunk is one thing. The DTs is something else, I know. Last year, I was in the same shape, and it took me three months now, to Now, wait get... a minute. Hold it, will you? Look, I was slugged, not slipped a Mickey. Slugged? Honest? Slugged. Honest. Now, if you don't mind giving me a hand, I'll get up. Ooh. Easy, Ooh. honey. Here, let me help you. Sorry. Oh. I figured you all wrong. I never thought you was slugged. Any idea who done it? No, no. Look, tell me, didn't you see anything before uh-uh. you found me, I mean? Uh-uh. Didn't you hear a girl scream, see her run away? Nothing at all. Oh. Honey, you must have been out longer than you thought. Maybe. Hmm? Hey. Hey, look, this, this card here on the ground. Yeah. What's your name, honey? Philip Marlowe, why? Why, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you more than that. You know who slugged you, honey? A polite guy. A very polite guy who left his card you engraved and all. Paul Niles, know him? I used to. It won't work, Swedes. Niles gave me that card earlier tonight. Must have dropped it just now. Also, Niles is dead in that you. And what? Back of that card there in pencil. Give me huh? that, will you? Gray's Motel, 1000 Santa Monica Boulevard, Bungalow 9. Sweetheart, I may have something good here. About who slugged you, you mean? Better than that, about who killed Niles and where she can be found. Goodbye, love. Here's five for your trouble and bless you. As I piled into my car, I knew that putting Niles' conversation piece about having just come from Nora's place when he first met me, together with the address on the back of his card, was taking a lot for granted. I sold myself that playing a long shot was better than not betting on anything at all, and I kept driving fast. When I came to a stop away from the place which was run down, spread out, and quiet, I had a feeling that what I had earmarked long shot was quickly moving up to even money. And when I was standing next to the motel bungalow Mark 9... That feeling became fact because inside and piled in an awkward heap on the floor was a still form of the girl the newspaper clipping had labeled Nora Kirby. It was another full second before I realized something even more important. On a hot night in August, there wasn't a single window open. And Nora Kirby was huddled close to a gas heater that was on but showed no flame. I picked up a stone at my feet, took one deep breath, and then crashed the pane of glass, unlocked the window, and got inside and opened the girl. I figured was taking the hasty way out of a murder that she no doubt had a very personal reason to commit. I stopped figuring when I was nearly next to her. I knew that she was still alive. And that a man gripping a forty-five in his hand had just opened the front door. Don't make another move, Marlowe, or I'll kill you. Well, comes the switch. Brother-in-law Garrett Horton. I never would have guessed. You wouldn't have had to try if you'd kept your nose clean. No. Get away from her. Why? So she can die as a suicide, which the police will chalk off as logical, since she's already wanted for murder that you no doubt committed? Exactly. Murder I committed because there isn't anything worse one can do to a blackmailer. Now that's it, Niles. The lady killer was blackmailing your sister. You found out and killed him before he could cause too much trouble. <coughs> Family trouble that would end up hurting the good thing you've got with husband Abel, huh? Yes. No, shut up and get away from her. We're going outside. You're kidding. Marlowe. Mar- Marlowe, I'll shoot you if you don't start walking. You're still kidding. Horton, you can't kill me without killing yourself. <coughs> this room is jammed tight with the gas you turned on after you brought her in here unconscious. After you sapped her outside of my place because she was on her way to see me and tell me that you had murdered Niles. The flash from that gun in your hand, <coughs> Horton will blow us all to bits. Face it, brother. For you, it's all or nothing at all. Go on, shoot. Go on, try it, try it. <coughs> I can't. I
Uh, you can see Miss Kirby now, Mr. Marlowe. She's going to be all right, but uh, hold her down to a few minutes, will you? All right, Doctor, just a few minutes. Hello, Nora. Been a long time getting together, huh? Yeah, but not through any fault of mine, Mr. Marlowe. I followed you from the moment you left Paul's place. But I wanted to see you alone, so I kept waiting for my chance. Which was canceled out when Horton spotted you after he left my office. Hmm. You had to learn to run faster, honey. He had to take time to knock me out, and still he caught up with you. So did you, I'm very glad to say. Even though you probably weren't trying to save me at the time, were you? Mm-hmm. Frankly, honey, until Horton stepped back into that bungalow to keep me from interfering with things, I figured you were it. That might have been, Marlowe. If Paul hadn't been killed just before I got to him, at least I'd have hit him with something hard. I had motive, you know. Yeah, I read all about it. Three years in prison for something you didn't do. But tell me, if Niles framed you and you knew it, why didn't you go to the police? He couldn't have been that irresistible. But he was, Marlowe. And more. As a matter of fact, he didn't frame me in the first place. It oh. was my own idea. You see, Paul was driving the car when we we had that accident three years ago. Not me. You switched places with him, huh? Mm-hmm. Why? He'd already had his license revoked for reckless driving. They'd have sent him away for ten years at least. As against my three. Believe it or not, at the time, I couldn't think of waiting that long for him. No? Hello, Marlowe. Hello, Matthews. We checked the story. It's true enough, even if it's the kind of thing we're not supposed to be able to understand. Of course. Paul was strictly a lady killer, remember? Yeah, so he was. Well, I guess that ties everything in, huh? Not quite, Phil. I've just finished taking a statement from Horton. There's one more question. Whatever made you so sure that in a room half filled with gas, a gun exploding would blow everything up? Oh, well, that's simple. I, I, uh, uh I, uh... You what? Well, I, I figured, you see. I, I thought that, uh... <laughs> yes, well, good night, Miss Kirby. Good night, Mr. Marlowe. So long, Lieutenant. So long. Lucky. By the time I got back to the quiet of my apartment on Franklin, it was a little better than two in the a.m. As I sank into an easy chair without bothering to turn on the lights, I realized that for the moment I was tired. Tired of people. Their troubles, their petty little jealousies. <laughs> lady killer. What makes one man a lady killer and another... Oh, well. I lit a last cigarette, and I thought about the mountain of trouble a classic Grecian profile had built for Paul Niles. I stopped thinking when the flare of the match in my hand showed in a mirror opposite me. The mirror that also reflected the face of the guy holding the match. Hmm. He was a long way from being an Adonis. Hmm. In fact... <laughs> he was slightly on the mud fence side. Hmm. And at the moment, glad of it. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. 
Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, Paul Dubov, Ted Von Elts, Ann Morrison, Don Randolph, and Edmund McDonald. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a man on trial for his life, and an A-1 citizen eager to testify. But there it was interrupted. And it wasn't until I found a corpse in a bubbling bath, gunplay in the woods, and lots of blackmail, that the real eager witness had a chance to talk. It will be New Orleans, city of romance and drama, which sends its detectives into action on gangbusters tonight. The superintendent of the New Orleans Police Department himself will narrate gangbusters' amazing story, the case of the sledgehammer sigh. You'll also find Basil Rathbone engaged in another of his exciting exotic mysteries. So be sure to hear them on most of these same CBS stations. Gangbusters and Basil Rathbone's newest mystery adventure. In fact, stay tuned right now for the Gangbusters program. Yes, it follows immediately on most of these same stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This started with a man on trial for his life and an A-1 citizen eager to testify. But there it was interrupted. And it wasn't until I found a corpse in a bubbling bath, gunplay in the woods, and lots of blackmail that the real eager witness had a chance to talk. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Eager Witness. It was the case of the people versus the oft-arrested, never-convicted, smooth Earl Jernigan, sometimes bookie, charged in the first degree with a month-old killing of a kindly, gray-haired horse trainer named Kurt Hopper, who had once almost been my client. It was the afternoon of the fourth day of the trial, and the prosecutor for the state had already built an almost airtight case against the alleged gambler when my turn finally came. To further substantiate the state's claim that Earl Jernigan did willfully and with malice of forethought take the life of the deceased Kurt Harper. Will Mr. Philip Marlowe take the stand? Raise your right hand. Promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but truth, happy God. I do. State your name and occupation. Philip Marlowe, private detective. Next stand. Mr. Marlowe, on the morning of the 30th day of July last, 
the day on which the late Kurt Hopper was murdered. Were you hired as a private detective by the said Mr. Hopper? I was. And at that time, Mr. Marlowe, did Mr. Hopper state his reason for hiring you? He did. He wanted me to act as his personal bodyguard on the following day when he planned to drive to San Francisco. Did he say why he needed a personal bodyguard? He did. He told me he was afraid for his life, that he refused the gambler's demand, that he drug a certain racehorse a week earlier, that that gambler had threatened to kill him. I see. Now, Mr. Marlowe. Did Mr. Harper name that gambler? Yes, he did. Who was it? Earl Jernigan. Thank you. No further questions, Your Honor. Counsel for the defense. Counsel for the defense waves cross-examination, Your Honor. The witness is excused. Didn't make sense. No cross-examination. Because from the opening adjective, the counsel for the defense, a dapper item named Calder, who always appeared in French cuffs, gray gabardine, and a cocky, uninviting smile had raved, ranted, Honor, and practically spit at each witness the state had presented. The so the courtroom was left with a tingling impression that Earl Jernigan's attorney had something of a surprise waiting up his legal sleeve. Later, when Calder was on his feet and addressing the jury, now, that something started out fast. Now that the state has taken the trouble to offer so much circumstantial evidence, so much hearsay, rumor, conjecture, now will I smash all of that with the testimony of one man. One man known to all of you as an outstanding citizen of this city. A prominent real estate broker. An unimpeachable witness eager to testify. Mr. Leonard Gaines. It worked. Landed in each and every lap like a live grenade and exploded all the way around at once. And when the eminent Mr. Gaines, gray at the temples, maybe 45, a neat and expensive midnight blue flannel with giant stick pin to match, took the stand. And in his own meeting of the board, tone of voice told the court that Earl Jernigan had... Spent the entire day and night of July 30th last with him at his Malibu Beach home. The prosecuting attorney's jaw dropped to his chest and he stared dumb. Day or night did Mr. Jernigan ever leave my home. And as for the hour of the murder, 8 o'clock in the evening, we were having dinner. After that, we played gin rummy until, oh, until midnight. Are you sure of that, Mr. Gaines? The hour of your dinner, I mean. I am positive, Mr. Calder. No, you can't be. You're lying. Quiet, quiet. Order. Miss Harper, order in the court, please. No, I won't be quiet. I won't anymore. Miss Harper, quiet. Order, order. This court is adjourned until tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Another scotch and soda, mister? Yeah, I guess so. Oh, wait a minute, baby. I think I'm going to have company. Mr. Marlowe, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm... Gail Harper, yeah, I know. (laughs) What I don't know is why you're not doing 30 days on a rock pile with that rumpus you just kicked up in court. Would you like a soft drink? No, thanks. All right, just one, baby. Jack. The judge said he understood and left me off with a short lecture, which is what I had counted on. Oh. You mean all that fireworks in there was planned, not just spontaneous combustion? That's right. I had a half time. <laughs> look, Mr. Marlowe, will you work for me? Oh, well, now, look, will baby. Will you help I... me prove that Mr. Leonard Gaines is alive and that Earl Jernigan did kill my father? Now, take it easy, Gail. It's a big mouthful, you know. Mr. I... Marlowe, listen, please. There isn't much time. We've got to prove this tonight or never. By noon tomorrow with the outside, the case will go to the jury. Okay, what do you want me to do? Take over where I left off. But first, let's get out of here. All right. And never mind that drink, miss. Where do we start, honey? 
with Leonard Gaines' ex-wife, Debbie Jansen. Here's a snapshot of her. Mm. They were divorced about six months ago, Mr. Marlowe, and she wasn't very happy about it. No, huh? Made you figure she was your in? Yes, and I was right. Mm. Mr. Marlowe, it took eavesdropping, bribery, second-story work, but I found out plenty. I'll bet you did. Like what? Oh, hold it, Gail. Light's red. Like the fact that Debbie and a guy called Eugene Mowry are putting a bite on Dane for $20,000. Mm. Blackmail, Mr. Marlowe, with the payoff schedule to be made sometime tonight. Right now, she's staying at the Sunland Sulphur Springs Lodge out in the valley. Gaines used to go there once in a while for his arthritis. And the why of the whole business is a letter Gaines once wrote to his ex-wife. No fooling. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, tell me, what's that to do with Jernigan's trial and Gaines being a... Oh, it's green now. I think there's a connection, because yesterday I overheard Debbie tell this Maui something about Gaines' scheduled appearance at the trial today, and... Uh-huh. <gasps> oh, Mr. Hey, hey! Those jerk California drivers... The man behind the wheel. What about him? That thin face, blonde hair. I've seen him before. I know he was trying to hit one of us. Oh, fine. Well, that'll keep things from getting dull, won't it? Then, then you're gonna help me. Well, now look, I. <laughs> uh, who could resist you, baby? Okay, tonight I check in at the lodge at Sunland Sulphur Springs. Come on, let's get out of here. It was 8 o'clock and almost dark when I reached the foothills of the mountain range that separates the San Fernando Valley from L.A. proper and turned off onto a narrow dirt road that ran through a twisting gorge past a moon-faced watchman who asked no questions as he slowly opened a sagging wooden gate, faintly labeled Sunland Sulphur Springs, where Mother Nature's remedies bubbled from the earth private. <laughs> it was another five minutes along the same dirt road uphill and through thick foliage before I was at a parking space out of my car and walking the last quarter of a mile toward the lodge itself that was spotted with widely separated cottages also sagging. And each tag, casa, and followed by something Spanish and hard to pronounce. Inside the place was cheap porch furniture and occasional threadbare rugs over scarred pine and deserted, except for a sleepy old guy with thick-lidded eyes and an accordion-wrinkled face who was slouched in a heap behind a sign on the reservation desk. The red Maynard Sharp, no less, night manager. When I gave him my name and said that both my rheumatism and I needed a rest, he came too, almost. Uh, Rumi, Mr. Marlowe. Well, let's see. Can let you have most any one of the cottages. Half of them are empty. Things kind of slow this time of year. How slow can you get? You'd be surprised. Uh, How's about uh, Casa Francisco de Leon? Casa Francisco, hmm? Yeah, that'll be fine, Mr. Sharp. All righty, sir. Now, if you'll just sign the register here, I'll get your key. But, uh, you As I signed my name, I checked the guest list quickly. And the next second found what I wanted. Deborah Jansen. And next to that, and in a different hand, her cottage for the night. Uh, Casa Rolando de uh, Baron Dido. That's close enough. Well, anyway, it was all I needed. I took the key from Mr. Sharp, a misnomer if ever you heard one, learned the location of my quarters, paid him in advance, and left. Outside, I turned to my right, past a large open bath that smelled like rotten eggs and talked to itself like a junior Vesuvius, as more warm sulfur waters, equally unpleasant to smell, bubbled from a pipe in the center. Beyond that was the first cottage, another casa I couldn't pronounce, and it stayed like that all the way down the line until I reached the second one that showed light. It was the casa known as Rolando de Barandido. And when I moved closer and around to a window that was screen only, 
I knew that my client had done her eavesdropping well, because in the center of the room and putting on her coat was the ex-wife named Debbie, and standing nearby and holding on tight to the cigarette in his hand like it was support. Debbie, what had Harry, to be the boyfriend, sure Eugene you know Mowry. You're sure that Gaines will go through with this all right? For the hundredth time, Eugene, yes, I'm positive. Can't you understand? He has to. Besides, $20,000 won't break him. It won't more than bend him a bit. Now, stop worrying. But I can't. Debbie, wh why must you go alone? Now, why can't I go with you? Eugene, please, we've been over that. I told Leonard that I'd meet him in town at the Beverly Crest Hotel at 10 and alone. He agreed to also be alone. Except for the month. Debbie, you do handle things well. Come here, darling. And the kiss be a brilliant. Oh, please, Eugene, there isn't time. Oh, what's the matter? Are my kisses losing their flavor at this point? Don't be a fool. Look, it's late, Eugene. It's after nine already. I've got to hurry. Now, go on. Go on, be a good boy and leave now. We shouldn't even be seen together tonight. Well, why not, Debbie? It's not smart. Here. Meet me at the tulip room, darling, at 11 as we planned. Then, Eugene, we'll have time and reason to relax. 20,000 bucks worth of reason. As Maori oozed toward the door, I slid away from the cottage and into the shadow of a clump of trees nearby. I stayed there as he walked out of sight down the road that led back to the parking space. Then a few minutes later, when Debbie clicked off the light and left, I moved out of hiding and started slowly after her at a safe distance. Until from someplace in the night, an ugly, snub-nosed automatic that belonged to someone blonde and thin-faced as a near-automobile accident stopped me cold. Where are you going, Jack? For air. I love to walk in the country at night, okay? I wouldn't know, Jack. I'm a city boy myself. But as long as that's what you want, it's Jake with me. As long as it's where it's good and dark. Now, go on. That way. Move. Jack, that's far enough. Hold it. Turn around and face me. Why, so I can watch you pull the trigger? Never mind why. Just turn. Okay, turn it is. That's better. Now, one step closer. One step closer. Hey, what's that? Now, pleasant, my friend. Taking wing. Now, before I beat you in little pieces, let's have it. Who are you? Who do you work for and what do you want with me? Come on, gunman, talk. Okay. Okay, uh, no more. My name's Langley. Work for Earl Jernigan. Oh? Uh, yeah, I've been watching you ever since the trial started. Jernigan didn't want you moving in on Which is why you tried to pick me off with a car when I was with Gail Harper this afternoon, huh? Come on! Yeah, 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 yeah that's why. Now, now what are you going to do with me? For the time being, Buster, leave you as is. Flat on your back, because I've still got to catch up with a lady before she reads a letter! City boy... In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, because of the sharp rise in America's birth rate during the war, we face a very serious educational crisis. Many communities will find that their schools lack sufficient teachers, classrooms, and facilities. Citizens must get together and work for better schools, more teachers. If we want all of our children to have a chance for a good education, we must take action now. 
Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Eager Witness. was strictly hit and run. I piled Langley into the Manzanita and didn't even wait to see him bounce. Instead, I took off through a gully that was a shortcut to my car because I knew that Jernigan's watchdog had nothing to offer compared with our hot-headed Debbie Jansen, who at the moment, no doubt, was well on her way to the Beverly Crest Hotel and the blackmail rendezvous that was a cinch to wind up in the final destruction of the letter. That was my theory. But I dropped it like a hot rock just as I crossed the path to the sulfur pool. <laughs> It was nothing but sulfur fumes and the thick gurgle of the springs until Sharp played his flashlight over the pool. Then we saw. Oh my gosh. And the water that was turning red from blood oozing around the knife in her back. Look, it's Miss Jansen. Come on, Pop, give me a hand. Let's get her out of there. Come on. Take it easy now. Take it easy. That's it. Debbie. Never should have tried it. Tried what? Who was it, Debbie? Who did this? He, he, he got the letter. Who? Who got the letter, Debbie? Debbie. Marlo, did she, did she pass out? For good, man. She's dead. Oh, uh, she, she seemed to be mumbling something about a letter. Did you get what it was? Yeah, only part of it. A killer apparently took the letter away from her. Believe me, that's bad. Letter? What's a letter? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Huh? Oh, it's probably that pheasant again. Letters? What are you talking about, Oh, son? I guess I'm just getting jumpy. Hey. Hey, there is somebody. Come on, Pop. Sounds, sounds like he's over there, Marlowe. Yeah, I can hear him. Oh, now, that, that ain't going to do you any good, son. Not in that brush, it ain't. And what's more, I wouldn't go any further if I was you. But, Pop, all he needs is ten seconds, and he can destroy that letter for good. Well, just the same, there's a million and one places a killer can hide in there and lay for you, son. Yeah. Yeah, Pop, well, for the moment it's a stalemate. I'd sure love to find out who that snake in the bush is. You know... I've run a peaceful place up until it's getting to be like one of them there movies. <laughs> Only thing left out is a posse. Yeah, you're so right. Murders in the night, lost letters. It's corny enough without a posse. Yeah, and uh, my dangers, too. Hmm? Yeah, I see what you mean. Are you ready to... Uh, to... Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, I'll lead you back to the office. My Jasper, I don't understand this one bit. Miss Jensen is stabbed to death over that letter, and in her dying... Hey! Huh? What is it? Shh. Up ahead there. What? Somebody duck behind that big tree. Keep the chatter going, man. Walk what? on up the path. Don't let him know we spotted him. Go on, talk, talk. Well, I, okay, sure, sure. I was saying I don't understand. Well, our place here is generally as quiet as a tomb. As the old now, man grimly had led his way up the path, I followed a few feet behind. When he got even with the tree, I turned suddenly, took three fast steps, and grabbed Come here, you. Hang on to you. Well, well. Mr. Leonard Gaines, the unimpeachable citizen himself, stands still, Gaines. Uh, uh, a gun. What's the idea, Marlowe? Try running and it'll come to you. I suppose you've got a legitimate reason for being here all thought up? I, I'm here because I, 
I've got a touch of arthritis. I need a treatment and a night's rest. Arthritis isn't all you're going to have if I find what I think I'm going to find in your pockets. Empty him, Buster. I'll I said empty him. Oh, all right, I'll, I'll empty them. That's better. The sharp, you're a witness, and I demand that you now, stop... Now, uh, just a minute, Mr. Gaines. You're in a pretty bad spot to demand anything. There, there's our baby. There's the letter we've been looking for. Pick it up, Gaines. Pick it up and read it. Now, now see here, Marlowe. See there, Gaines. Read it while you're able to. Yeah. My dear Debbie, if I didn't know you so well, I'd resent your stupid accusations. Now, look, Mark. Read it. We've already made our property settlement, as you're well aware, and you'll be a long time finding a court that says otherwise. Now you know where you can go, so why not get started as ever, Leonard? Oh, fine. This is about as incriminating as a lecture on the family meat bill. Sharp, whose jurisdiction are we under here? Uh, Juris... Uh, why, uh, county sheriff's office. All right, call him. Also, call your man out on the highway and have him lock that main gate. Main gate? Yeah. Say, now, that's a good idea. I'll do it right now. now. Wait a minute. Have you got a gun? Yep, got a rifle. Been in the family for years. Can you use it? Well, yeah, I reckon I can. Well, where are you going? Out the roundup, Langley. He'd be pushing hard to give his boss's star witness here a big helping hand. I want to be in shape to push back. And remember, Pop, huh? keep your eye on Gaines and not on the phone when you make those calls. I'll see you. The second time that night, I started down the hill and toward the car lot, keeping in the shadows and moving slowly this time. Because it was odds on that Langley had taken everything in. And I knew that he'd try to part my hair with a gun barrel and pull Leonard Gaines out of the jam he was in the very first chance he had. So I stayed off the paths long enough to have both socks full of burrs when it happened. But not what I expected. It was the sharp family blunderbuster that exploded with a blast like a small howitzer. So also, for the second time, I turned and ran back up the hill, this time to the office. I got there just as Maynard climbing hand over hand up a smoking rifle barrel made it to his feet. Maynard! Maynard, what happened? Where's Gaines? Well, I, I, I don't know. It got away, I guess. Well, the shot. What about that? It went up there, through the roof. Oh, fine. Well, gosh, I, I, I didn't suspect a thing. He just said he wanted to smoke. But he didn't happen to have a match, I know. So you hung your rifle over your arm, stuck both hands in your pockets to find one for him, and that's when he took you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Well, how'd you know? Never mind, Pop. Well, I, I, I made a grab for him, though. Uh, ripped his coat about halfway off. Oh, that's great. That's uh, great. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm sure sorry he got away, Mark. All right, don't worry about it, will you? Can't get far with the gate locked. Well, I, uh, I got bad news there, too. Oh, oh the gate's locked all right. But uh, there's a back road. There's a back what? Back road. Road, yeah, well, uh, right yeah. It, it ain't much. It's rough and rocky, but it's passable. And uh, anybody's been up here as often as Mr. Gaines has, sure know about it. Oh, great. Look, Pop, can't you understand that there was a murder committed here tonight and we had the murderer yeah, but and no but... buts? <laughs> Fell for the oldest gag in the world. But I was Marlo... a sucker to turn him over to you. And will you stop waving that envelope? I just think you ought to see this. All right, what is it? You... Oh, where'd you get all that loot? Uh, Gaines dropped it when I ripped his cot. Twenty grand, it says here on the wrapper. Something else written here, too. Casa... Rolando de Barandito at 10. Casarone. Pop, that's it. That's the answer. Come on, we got to get down that back road in a hurry. With 
chop at the wheel of the pickup truck, we bounced over the pair of sometimes parallel ruts studded with stones the size of bowling balls. It was called a back road. The better part of two miles before he cut lights and motor and whispered that if Gaines was going to get stuck at all, it was sure to happen in a dry wash just around the next bend. I told him to wait and went ahead on foot. He was right. Gaines was stuck in more ways than one. His car was up to its hubcaps in sand and his wallet up to its stamp compartment in blackmail, conducted by his ex-wife's murderer with the same leather she'd had. A letter. It was Eugene Murray, and clenched in his hand was a tattered white envelope, nothing more. I'll make it easy for you. I held my 38 in close to my side and edged up behind them. 20,000. Now, Murray, uh, I don't have that much. You lie. You're going to pay her that. I don't know. I know because we, we, we worked the deal out together. Only she got greedy, tried to double-cross me and pull it alone. Oh, so you killed her? Yes, I, I didn't intend to, but when I found out that she tricked me, I, I was furious. <laughs> the first thing that I knew, I, I, I'd stabbed her. Uh, that's enough of that. Just give me the money. You've nothing to worry about. Now, listen, Maury, I no, tell you I... you listen, Gaines. You're in no position to bargain. It's better than having your $200,000 gambling debt exposed and your reputation ruined, isn't it? <laughs> or facing the trigger man, Langley, if you refuse to alibi for Jernigan, isn't it? Or bucking a perjury charge if you do alibi? Oh, no, no, no. You've got yourself in the corner again, so pay off. It's only 20 grand. But I tell you, Maury, I don't have it. You're lying again. No, he isn't. <laughs> don't move, either one of you. Leave your hands where they are. I got the 20 grand right here, and it's pretty well earmarked as blackmail payment already. Just to round things out, Maury, I'll take that envelope you've got there. This? Well, what do you want this for? Funny man. Because it's no doubt postmarked with an hour, a date, and a location. Which, together with Brother Gaines' own handwriting, places him out of town on July 30th. A time he swears he was at his Malibu home all day with Jernigan. Right, Gaines? Yeah, smart boy, aren't you, Marlowe? You've still got a chance, Gaines. You'd better gamble with me. You've got nothing to lose now. I'm with you. Stand still, Buster. So help me out. Now, Gaines, go! Go! Oh, my leg! Were you thinking of going someplace, Mr. Gaines? Uh, no. No, I... I'm not going anyplace, Mr. Marlowe. Well, Gail, the big show's about to start. Court will be in session in a few minutes. I know. And different from yesterday. Yeah. Oh, you did a swell job, Mr. Marlowe. Gee, gee, I don't know how to thank you. Save it, baby. If that scale Lady Justice holds in her hands is in better balance today, it was your hunch and old Maynard's blunderbust did as much to put it there as my running around through the brush itself of springs. But all I knew was that Gaines was lying. I didn't know it was as complicated as it was. Well, that's because Debbie Jansen was twice as treacherous as we figured. I still don't understand. How did you know that Eugene Maury had killed Debbie? Well, you see, baby, I overheard her tell Maury that she was going to meet Gaines in the Beverly Crest Hotel at 10 for the payoff. Uh-huh. But I figured that was a lie strictly for Maury's benefit when Pop gave me the packet of money Gaines had dropped. It had that complicated name of a cabin in the time of the appointment, which was also 10, written on it. Mm. So I knew the real meeting was scheduled to take place out there. See? Oh, I see. Then she was going to send Maury off to the Beverly Crest while she collected the money at Sulphur Springs and then beat it alone. That's it, honey. You see, if her cabin had been named something simple like uh, Number Four, then Gaines could have remembered it. Instead of that Casa Robino del Bangadoro, <laughs> whatever it was, he had to write down, you see? Well, then things might have been different. Ah, oh, you'd have found a way. After all, you figured out it was the postmark that was important. Only after I'd been slapped in the face by a perfectly harmless letter with no envelope. Had to be the postmark. What else? 
Oh, they're starting. Yeah. Good luck, Mr. Marlowe. Give him the works. Don't worry, baby. I'm the eager witness today. We're going to knock him dead, literally. <laughs> they got it coming. I watched Jernigan's face as the preliminaries got underway. The killer was beaten. When the court finally settled down to work and the prosecutor took over, I listened to his deft build-up as he primed the jury and the dramatic ringmaster voice he used when he called... Will Philip Marlowe take the stand, please? Now, Mr. Marlowe, you told us yesterday that you are a private investigator. Now will you tell the court in your own words what happened to you last night? I sat there looking into the cold, baleful eyes of the prosecutor and thought of a paraphrase on that wonderful quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. It's not enough to ask for justice. One must also hope for mercy. Mr. Marlowe. Hmm? Oh, oh yes, I I'm sorry. Well, it began here in this room yesterday afternoon at about 3.30 when the counsel for defense called a witness, a Mr. Leonard Gaines, to the stand. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Joy Terry, John Daner, Michael Ann Barrett, Junius Matthews, Ben Wright, Lou Krugman, Larry Dobkin, and Bud Widom. The special music is by Richard Orant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The trail started in Montana with a bum with two names rushing away from his lady love and led fast into L.A. past a southerner from Canada, a worried wool dealer and a chorus girl with a forty-five. When it finally stopped at murder in the park, the tramp was still in a hurry. <laughs> Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You and I have a friend coming to call next Monday night. She's my friend Irma. If this beautiful, lovable, but dumb blonde isn't your friend now, she will be the moment you hear over most of these same CBS network stations next Monday following the Lux Radio Theater. My friend Irma will bring you plenty of laughs and great entertainment. So be sure to make friends with my friend Irma these Monday nights on CBS, where you'll hear them all this fall. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts are heard Mondays, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
place and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison of the grave. The trail started in Montana with a bum with two names rushing away from his lady love and led fast into L.A., past a southerner from Canada, a worried wool dealer and a chorus girl with a forty-five. When it finally stopped at murder in the park, the tramp was still in a hurry. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Bum's Rush. You know, there comes a time in everyone's life when a relative wants a favor. But this was a particularly nice relative. <laughs> in fact, a great old gal. She'd written my name and address in the center, and her name, Jesse Gavins, Eagles Rock, Montana, in the upper left corner of the envelope. The stamp totaled the wear mail special, and the letter inside started off like one of those, I was wrong, you've got to find him for me, you've got to type. But it didn't wind up that way. Clipped to the letter was a $100 check, and under that, a not-too-good snapshot of a bald man holding a rake, who wouldn't have been helped any by better photography. Ten minutes later, at exactly 8 p.m., my long-distance call was put through, and the voice that belonged to Aunt Jessie was snapping at me from Eagles Rock, Montana, like the end of a whip. Certainly I wrote it. How many Jesse Gavises do you think there are in Eagles Rock? Philip, I want you to find Jonathan Miter and see if he's all right. Yeah, you said that in your letter. Jonathan Miter is my fiancé. Aunt Jessie. Oh, I know what you're thinking, <laughs> young man, but I'm... Yeah, I hope my harmony's that good when I'm 55. <laughs> Why are you worried, honey? Because he left here last week on some kind of a big deal. It's a secret. That's all he'd tell me, and I haven't heard a word from him since. I see. Well, tell me, what sort of a deal would it be? I mean, what business? Uh, he's not in any business. Oh. What was his work before he retired? Well, he's not exactly retired either. He's not exactly... Look, Aunt Jessie, I'm getting at this. What does he do, or what did he used to do for a living? Uh... Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Look, you didn't happen to give that fine, honest, proud man a wad of money to finance this big deal of his, did oh, you? Oh, no. Well, certainly. then don't, because I'll be frank. Sounds to me like a broken-down con man warming up a new routine. Then I'll gladly pay to find that out, Philip. But I think you're wrong. Jonathan told me that he had to prove himself by making some money of his own before he'd marry me. <laughs> As if I didn't have enough to take care of two people already. <laughs> okay, Jesse, it's a little off-center, but I'll buy it. Uh, How'd you get that? Uh, from checking through every single thing of his I could lay my hands on. It was on the back of an envelope. Of course, it may not mean nothing. You're so right, Jesse. Please, now, don't joke with me, Philip. <laughs> Jonathan was so serious and in such a hurry, and there was a funny, brave glint in his eye when he left. Do your best. Uh, 
brave glint. Okay, Jesse, no jokes. Goodbye, darling. I felt a little sorry for my Aunt Jesse Gavins because the concept of a knight of the road rushing off on a secret quest to prove himself worthy of marriage held up like a celluloid shovel. And I got no help when I pulled to a stop in front of 764 Hope Street. It was a cramped combination warehouse and office of corrugated iron and glass brick, respectively, with a shy red and black sign reading Hirsch Woolens over a door that looked like, well, it looked like it handled about as much business recently as a repair shop for spinning wheels. It was half open, however, so I went in just in time to catch the last round of what must have been a healthy spat going on behind a frosted glass door marked private. Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Eldon Hurst. Keep your eyes more on wool and less on nylon and you'll be better off. All right, all right. For heaven's sake, Martha, this is no time to quibble. We've got more important things to do. Unless, of course, you want to keep that chorus job at the plumes forever. Well? Okay. You just watch your step. Goodbye, Eldon. Stand aside, stupid. This is a hallway, not an art gallery. Yeah, there's a petty girl if ever I've seen one. Well, what do you want? Hmm? Oh, uh, uh, Mr. Hirsch. Yes? Yeah, well, I'm Ned Johnson. I'm looking for a job. What kind? Oh, salesman. Uh, wool's my line. See. And how long have you been waiting out here? Oh, I just stepped in. Come inside. Thanks. Sit down. Now, what is your specialty? Woolens, worsted, or felt? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I've handled them all. I, I... We confine ourselves largely to a very high-grade merino woolen, Mr. Uh... Johnson, Ned Johnson. I've worked with merino. Well, what about the others? Lester, perhaps? Lincoln? Oh, sure. Lester, Lincoln, certainly. I, I find it all a fascinating business. And so do I. A very romantic background. Yeah. By the way... What do you think of Lanatel as against Merino? Lanatel? Well, not good. Not No, you see, I've watched the Lanatels and the Reigns right through shearing and on up to weaving. It just doesn't compare with... Uh, what's the matter? What are you really after? I slipped, huh? You fell on your face. <laughs> Lanatel is synthetic wool made from milk. Now, who are you? Okay, okay. I'm from the Sequoia Credit Association. We're investigating you. Just a periodic routine thing. It's strictly confidential. Get out, I... Get out of here and stay out if I ever catch you. All me. right, take it easy. I was clumsy, that's all. Don't start a riot about Look, it. Look, you pry into my apartment. That's apartment's quite a temper you got there. Better watch it, Hirsch. It'll get you in trouble so long. I hadn't exactly been wool gathering with Hirsch and company, but I hadn't exactly made strides on the connection between a bum in a hurry and 764 Hope Street either. However, I couldn't help wondering what Hirsch had meant when I'd overheard him speak to the girl in the office about more important things to do. So when he slammed the door on my shoulder blades, I went around to the alley for a peek in his warehouse. But I skipped that when a man stepped into view wearing the identical face I had in my pocket on a snapshot. It was Jonathan Midas. He'd swapped a rake for a silver-tip cane and patches for 14-carat class from Spatz to a Hamburg, which might well have covered a bald head. But it was the same man, no doubt about it. So I decided to play this one strictly three cushions with reverse English. Hey! Huh? Hey, there, you! Oh, were you addressing me, sir? Yeah, don't I know you? Oh, sure I do. Point east, huh? Uh, you're mistaken, my man. I haven't been east in 30 years. Oh, come on, friend. I'd know you anyway. You're good old Jonathan Miter. Uh, sir, I am Ross J. Crowley of Canada. And I have never had the dubious pleasure of your acquaintanceship until this very moment. Ross J. Crowley of Canada, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay, Miter, that's the way you want it. What are you doing around the wool business? Setting it up for a fleecing or just pulling it over somebody's eyes? 
My good man, you, you've obviously confused me with someone else. Now, pack off, my nice fellow. I'm, I'm in a hurry. Now, wait a minute, Pop. Wait a minute. Let's get this straight first. Your name's not Crowley. Why are you using it? My God, please, sir, you're trying my patience. Stand aside. Come on, let's have it. Oh, very well, if you insist. Here it is, then. Look out. Hey, hey, come back here, you old goat. Why don't you look out? Why, you awkward roughneck. Why don't you look where you go? I was, but I, I couldn't get around all three of you. Three? What do you mean? You three? and your two big feet. If you can't keep those gunboats out of people's way by yourself, hire a pilot. Hey, you... Oh, by now, my boy's so far ahead, I couldn't catch him if he stopped for lunch. Thanks to you. Goodbye. I went as far as the corner anyway, but I'd been right the first time. Jonathan Mida, alias Ross J. Crowley of Canada, was long gone, and I had no idea where. This left me with one slim, lovely lead, a lady named Marsha. If I'd eavesdropped correctly, she would shortly be making with her legs in the chorus of the Plumes Theater restaurant. It was 7.30 when I entered the platinum-plated tourist trap on Hollywood Boulevard that featured small portions of bad food under glass and large helpings of good skin under lights. It cost me ten bucks and a fast ad live backstage, but it would have been worse out front, so when the chorus high kicked its way out into the wings, I nailed Marsha as she went by. She narrowed a half a pound of mascara at me and let her footlight smile drop, which left very little else. Yeah, my name's Marsha. What do you want? Make it snappy. I gotta change. Change what? Your hairdo? Mm. This won't take a minute, baby. All I want to know is where Jonathan Mighty can be found. How should I know? I never heard of him. You're stalling on your own time, baby. I got all night. Not to you, Jack. Blow. Come back here. This is important. Now, listen, you. I don't know anybody called Jonathan... What's his name? And put one more fingerprint on my arm and you'll get bounced out of here on your head. You know there's just a chance you could be on the level? Look, the guy wants about 55 and spats with a Hamburg over what is no doubt a bald dome. Carries a black cane with a silver tip and for some reason answers the name of Crowley. Crowley? Yeah, that's it. Ross J. Getting warmer, huh, kid? And don't bother telling me you never heard of him. So I've heard of him. So what? He's a good pal of mine. Met him a couple of nights ago. He's quite a sport. I'll bet he is. Where can I find him? What do you want him for? I want to talk to him. That's all. Where's he live? Up a tree. Like I said, Buster Blow. And like I said, baby, this is important. So important, I'll have a lopsided line in the next number if you don't talk, because you won't be there. You'll be on your way to the pokey. Now, where does he live? I don't know. He's from Canada. You can come closer than that, sweetheart. Give. All right. He tells me he takes a walk in the park every night. He raves about the, the gladiolas. Like they grow in Coldwater Canyon Park, maybe? Maybe. Mm. Thanks. You're a good kid. Keep your powder dry, baby. I'll see you. That park looked deserted when a half hour later I drove by it to the far end, turned down a side street and stopped. But as I started in on foot, I saw him, Spats, Hamburg, Kane, and Alias, ambling slowly away from me along a back path. I started after him quietly, and when he got near a corner, I was close enough to hail him, and then grabbed. But I didn't get the chance. Stand still and keep your mouth shut. I turned slowly. It was the gentleman with the big feet, and he wasn't much uglier, just a little flabbier than the automatic wrapped up in his fist. You seem to be falling over my feet every time I turn around. I noticed that. But I figured the first time was coincidence. What do you figure now? That our gay dog, Mr. Crowley, who just turned that corner there, is wagging two tails. But you hold the gavel, Chairman. And don't you forget it, either. So he gave you the name Crowley, did he? Mm-hmm. Why, you think he's got another one? Stop that. We both know he's lying. What I don't know is why he took that name or why you're interested. It's a hobby. I collect old geezers with more than one name. To handle hard, huh? You won't tell me? Well, I don't know your angle either. Uh, we uh, might work out a trade, huh? No. I'm not wasting any more time either. You're not going to get away from me again. 
And that means you'd better stay right here. Oh! up on the ground with a stomach full of pain. I saw him run down the path. When I got back to my feet, he was taking the corner. and just started after him when it came. I froze and listened. There was nothing more to hear. I walked softly as far as the corner. He was face down the toes of his oversized shoes, digging into the grass, and the gun he hadn't time to use spilled a few inches away from his clenched, dead hand. Across the park and rushing for Coldwater Canyon Road as fast as his feet would go was a bum with two names and a Hamburg hat. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, 30 minutes packed full of talent, music, and fun. That's the Horace Height. Original Youth Opportunity Show, coming your way every Sunday evening on CBS. Yes, this fall, you'll hear them all on CBS. A galaxy of stars, and one of the brightest is genial Horace Height, who keeps the fun rolling with one hand, and with the other, pushes open the door to opportunity. Gives a talented youngster his big break toward fame and fortune in show business. Remember, Sunday night, it's Horace Height and his Original Youth Opportunity Program. Listen every Sunday, starting this Sunday, over most of the same CBS stations. Tune in, tune in this fall, for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The Bums Rush. I took after the fleeing figure known to my Aunt Jessie as Jonathan Miter, or Ross J. Crowley, who was still barely visible ahead with arms and legs flailing the night air like so many test streamers in a wind tunnel. I didn't know any more about his double identity than I had before. But I did know that what might have started as only a confidence game of sorts had now mushroomed in a murder with the aforesaid gentleman very much involved. And a moment later, when I saw him breathless and afraid, duck into a sagging deserted wooden shack... It showed a single red light and was labeled Department of Parks, Fire Equipment, Private. I figured the right time and place had come to talk it all over. When I finally carefully stepped inside and announced both myself and 38 in hand in definite stentorian tones, he agreed wholeheartedly. All right. All right. I'll come out just as you say, sir, with my hands up. <laughs> After all, I, I have no reason to hide. Other than murder, no. What murder? That noise I heard... That's what it was. Somebody was shot. No, somebody was run over by a bullet rolling downhill at a terrific rate of speed. Now, shut up and turn around, Pop. Hands still high. Uh, Time we got cautious. Uh, are you searching for a gun on me, sir? <laughs> Young man, you must be out of your mind. First, you insist that I'm a Mr. Miter, Miter. Somebody I never heard of. And you're convinced that I'm a murderer. I don't understand you. There. No gun? Now, you satisfied? No, intrigued. Where'd you throw it? I didn't. I never had one. Anything else? Yeah, the name Crowley, Ross J. Why do you use it? Because it's mine. And that young man is a very common customer. <laughs> now, do you mind if I leave? I do. Uh, now, look, old-timer. Uh, I'm only going to be nice about this for a little while because, first of all, there's a fresh corpse outside, and where I stand, you could be responsible for it. Uh, I'm 
second of all? Second of all, is my angle, where I fit, who I work for, facts, and I don't want to reveal them unless I have to. Now, from the top, you and the dead guy, the connection, what is it? I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about. You haven't, huh? Okay, Pop, we play it straight all the way. Now, listen. My name's Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and I know what it's time to blow a whistle. Don't move, Marlowe, or you never will again. Oh, fine. Marsha. That's right, Marsha. And all loaded down with a nasty old forty-five automatic that makes her look and feel very unladylike. Drop it, Marlowe. Come on! That's better. Now, Mr. Crowley, without waiting for Marlowe to apologize, go on. Go, but, but where To the you... hotel. It's important, so hurry. Oh, yes, very well. I won't waste a second. Uh, the key. Please. You won't need the key. Somebody's waiting for you. Goodbye, Mr. Crowley. Uh, uh, goodbye. Uh, I hope I never meet you again, Mr. Maitland. Good night. <laughs> it's cute, isn't it? Uh-huh, darling. The moment's unimportant. Right now, you're my only concern, Marlowe. Oh, that's nice, Marsha. It's cozy. Just the three of us. You and that giant U.S. pistol, caliber... Say, baby, that's not your gun, is it? No. You feel slighted? Oh, no, no, sweet. Happy. Stay back, Marlowe. Why? I'll shoot. Oh, no, you won't. You can't. I warn you, Marlowe. No, no, no. You see, baby, of the three safety devices on that army gun, that doohickey there on the side is one. It won't work unless it's in the forward position. Don't speak, jerk. Let go of me. When school's out, I will. Now, the first question, teacher. You and Grandpa, alias Jonathan Might, also alias Ross J. Crowley, what's the game you two are playing? I don't know. Where does Hirsch fit in? Come on, it's getting late. The star pupil wants an answer. He's anxious to get to the head of the class. Talk. What is it? I don't remember, and I won't, so don't bother getting masculine or polishing Apple's pupil. When I forget, I forget for a long, long time. Is that clear? Yeah, it is. And since I can't wait, since I want to go out and play, well, we'll put you in here safe keeping. Hey, honey, you don't, you don't mind if I go through your bag, do you? <laughs> I didn't think you would. Oh, here's a key that says in what room I'll find the team of Crowley and Miner. My, my, such a temper. After I'd picked up my 38, which the lady, who no longer sounded like one, had made me drop, and to check the hotel key that read Villa 12, Wiltshire Gardens, Beverly Hills, I ran outside and back toward my car in what I figured should be a big hurry. When I was halfway there, I had a premonition the speed was not to be. A premonition that was a head dressed in blue, carrying a club, wearing a badge, and leaning on my right front fender. And it wasn't until I was next to him that I quit worrying about a long, involved delay. Because the officer on hand, one Kurt Lemley, was an old and, I hope, still good friend. Well, hiya, Phil. Been waiting here for you since I called in about that body up there. Some kid heard the shot. Yeah. So you had once pegged this all alone and very suspicious-looking car, huh? Yeah, surprised it was yours. I'm disappointed. I'd hoped the name of the owner's tag was going to be Raleigh Newcomb. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know his name? Don't you? No. No, we were on different sides when he got shot. No, he's from Canada. What? Yeah, Vancouver. He had a business up there with a guy named Ross J. Crowley. Crowley? Mm-hmm. Hey, Kurt, how'd you find all this out? I found a clipping in his wallet. It's got a picture on it. Oh, wait, it's right here. Wait a second, I'll put a light on it. Yeah, hurry up, will you? Let's see. See, two guys in front of a building. That's Raleigh right. Newcomb and Ross J. Crowley officiated the Kurt. opening of the... Wait a Sure, it's what I figured the guy's a liar. I've already met a guy who insists that that's his name and he's ball like the Crowley in the picture. Yeah, but there's a similarity in, even though the picture's anything but clear. Who guy are you talking about, Phil? Jonathan Miter, an old geezer I was hired to find. Hmm? Bum who's pulling something fancy that incidentally ties in real tight with that murder over there. You know where he is, sir? Sure I know. That's where I was heading when I ran into you. Who? Ran into what? What is it? The picture. What? Kurt. Yeah? Move your thumb up a little, will you? The way you just had it. My thumb? Yeah, yeah, move it. Well, that's it, like that. 
Oh, brother, brother, have I got a hunch. How about what? Another murder, a neat one that's scheduled to come off any minute at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel. I'll see you later. Goodbye. At best, it was ten screeching stop-and-go minutes from Coldwater Canyon Park across Beverly Hills to the Wilshire Gardens Hotel on the boulevard of the same name. And all the way, I kept hoping, over time, that one of two things was so. Either my hunch was wrong and nobody else was going to get hurt for a while, or it was right and I was still on time. But when I was there, parked and running toward the villa number 10, which was a silent stucco square, choking to death under ivy, and showing only a single light in the living room, I was almost sure that it was going to play still another way. Me right and too late to do any good. When I tried the door and found it open, and inside saw at once the letter propped up against a lamp on an end table that I'd been afraid I'd find, there was no longer any doubt. And even as I crossed the room, I knew that I was going to read a suicide note addressed to the police, telling them that the undersigned Ross J. Crowley had taken his own life, as well as that of the partner he'd been stealing from, Raleigh Newcomb, who had currently been pursuing him. But I didn't know until I reached for the letter to make sure that I'd figured right with the last line, just before the signature. It read, Also, rather than face the humility of being dragged through the courts for killing Newcomb, they have taken the life of a man who would have caught me. A private detective named Philip Marlowe. You read well, Marlowe. What? Especially when it's your own victory, no? Hey. Don't move. Well, <clears throat> ah. Mr. Hirsch, huh? Or do I call you Crowley now? Doesn't matter, Marlowe. Suit yourself. What does matter is that you're not quite the boy genius you think you are. Meaning what? Meaning, Marsha. You talk to her at the plumes, then she talks to me. Between the two of us, we've maneuvered you around just like we wanted to. So we could include you in our plan. In other words, Marlowe, when Marsha sent Mida here from the park, we knew you'd follow. Marsha's reliable. Yeah, all year round, I'll bet. Okay, Crowley, so the one with two heads isn't Jonathan Mida, it's you. You is Eldon Hirsch here in L.A. There's Ross J. Crowley, Newcomb's partner up in Canada. A crooked partner, Crowley, who when he knew he was going to be caught, decided to kill himself but with another guy's body. Jonathan Mida, so it wouldn't hurt. Exactly. Also, Marlowe, nobody will bother to look past what will pass as Crowley's body for the murderer of Newcomb, who I didn't expect on the scene. I think you'll admit it's all accounted for in that letter there in Crowley's, uh, my handwriting. Bravo, you skipped nothing. Now, what about me? Yes, you. You must go before Jonathan Mida, you know. Otherwise, the coroner might find something wrong with the sequence of death. So it's you first, then Mida. Who no doubt is unconscious in the bedroom right now? No, Mr. Marlowe, who no doubt is standing right here listening carefully. Mida, you crazy fool. Stay where you are. No, no, Mr. Crowley, I won't. That way I die. This way at least I have a chance. Go, Crowley. I saw Mida. Mida, you all right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Just wing. Oh, you got him, didn't you, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, I... No. (laughs) No, Jonathan, you got him. That rush did it, you big... Bomb, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, bomb. It was two long hours of first aid for Jonathan. Arrest on the charge of murder for both Crowley and the accomplice before and after the fact, Martha. And questions and answers and triplicates for the police before... Mida and I were finally alone and back in my office waiting for a call we'd put through to, of course, Eagles Rock, Montana. 
But even then, the gentleman vagabond couldn't quite get over things. Then, in other words, Mr. Marlowe, uh, this Crowley who introduced himself to me as Hirsch had his fiendish plan already formulated. And on one of his trips down from Canada, saw me when his train stopped at Eagle's Rock. I was raking leaves around the depot. And he saw me, and he hired me on the spot because he needed someone to fit the part of his corpse. That's it. And you'll admit you were well qualified for the job, alone in the world. Except for Jess here. Which you didn't happen to mention. And the fact that you were bald. Uh, true, true. Don't be sensitive. <laughs> you see, Crowley or Hirsch was also bald. What? All that hair of his a wig? That's right. To pay every bit of it. And incidentally, you see, the reason I caught on to things, Johnny, a policeman found a newspaper picture of Newcomb and Crowley in Newcomb's wallet. Which told you that I couldn't be Crowley. That's right. It also told me more. When the policeman accidentally put his thumb over the bald part of Crowley's head, it gave me a different picture. Uh-huh. Then I only paid attention to what I could see, features blurred though they were. Which you then knew were Hershey. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. This is Marlowe speaking. On your call to Miss Jessie Gavins in Eagles Rock, Montana. One moment, please, sir. Here. Here, take it, Jonathan. Me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, speak. All right, all right. Hello, Jesse! Jessica, this is Johnny. <laughs> yeah, Cuddles? Yeah, it's me, all right. I, I, I'm in Los Angeles with Mr. Marlowe. Cuddles, you don't have to shout so loud, yeah, you know. She's clean up there, the eagle. I know, but she can hear oh. you. Just talk. Uh, Jessica, Jessica, you guess what happened now. now I'll tell you. Yeah. A, a man hired me to work for him, to pose... Supposed to uh, impersonate a Mr. Ross J. Crowley because he said he had to be free to investigate some crooked people who would try and contact me. Yeah. <laughs> and since he offered good money, right on the spot there, Jessica, I took the job. I thought you'd be proud of me making extra money. No, wait a minute, Jessica. Mr. Marlowe, I'd better cut this short, hadn't I? It's long distance. It's cost money. Don't worry about it, Johnny. There's no hurry. Take your time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, Jessica! Jessica, now what this man really wanted, you there, Jessica? What uh, was to use me as a corpse? That's right, a body. No, his, I feel fine. You see, he was going to put uh, his rings on me, another identification, to knock me unconscious and get me to By the time I got Jonathan Mitre down to Union Station and aboard a northbound train with specific instructions to stay away from strangers, and got back to my own apartment on Franklin. It was better than three o'clock in the morning. Oh, and I was tired. I emptied out my pockets and started to undress. But I forgot about that when my eyes fell on the picture that Jessie Gavins had sent me in her original letter. The picture of Jonathan. Well, now Aunt Jessie was going to be happy. But I wondered for how long. Somehow the portrait of the man with a hoe with a solid look of the ages didn't fit the spare frame of Jesse's night of the road. A lonesome train whistle would blow in the night and Jonathan Mida would be gone. Adventures of Philip Marlowe star Gerald Moore and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. 
Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Georgia Ellis, Hans Conrad, Ann Morrison, Herb Butterfield, Wilms Herbert, and Bill Boucher. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The lady tourist was a schoolteacher out after glamour, and she got it. But only after she learned that in Hollywood, the three R's could be reading, done in a dark room, writing found in a dead man's pocket, and arithmetic that added up to murder times two. If you think you've got troubles, you should be married to Liz Cooper. She can scare up more trouble than a tropical hurricane, but it's always the kind of trouble you can laugh at because it's all part of My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. My Favorite Husband is part of CBS's great laugh lineup for Friday night. You won't want to miss a single minute of My Favorite Husband. And you'll want to be around, too, to hear the Goldbergs, Leave it to Joan, and Breakfast with Burroughs. They'll all be broadcast on Friday nights over most of these CBS stations starting next Friday. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. The lady tourist was a school teacher out after glamour, and she got it. But only after she learned that in Hollywood, the three R's could be reading, done in a dark room, writing found in a dead man's pocket in arithmetic that added up to murder times two. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Rustin Hickory. It was hot in my apartment, even at 10 o'clock at night. The sultry wind blowing through curtains at the far side of the room didn't help a bit. It was the kind of night that made me wish I was something else, a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, anything. After a long, hot day spent in the downtown courts of law, listening to the petty arguments of a petty larceny case, I was tired of petty people. The paper I had picked up on my way home wasn't helping any. Ten killed in an air crash. Mental cruelty, says local songbird. I made myself another highball, lots of ice, easy with water, and picked up the paper again. It was still more of the same. Cy Nestor killed in office on Sunset Strip. Cy Nestor. <laughs> He'd hit the papers before. Bookie, B-minus picture producer, general racketeer. Somehow I wasn't too surprised he was on the receiving end for a change. My drink was good for ten more pages of equally dull reading, and I was set for the next in line when the phone rang. Mr. Philip Marlowe? It was the first attractive voice I'd heard all day. Mr. Marlowe? And you know... I thought she might be fun. My name is 
Joan Rustin, and I'm only here in Hollywood from Burnville, Nebraska, on a vacation, and I wanted to have some fun. You know, see the nightclubs and the uh, stars hey. and that sort of thing. Hey, wait a minute, Joan. I don't want trouble, Mr. Uh, Hold it. Uh, teacher. Uh, hey. Yeah? Let's back up a little, huh? Your name is Joan Rustin. You're from Ferndale, Nebraska, which you're right, I've never heard of. Also, you're a school teacher. That much I got. <laughs> but the rest about the sights, the last part, the trouble. Oh, but don't you see? They're the one and the same. Oh? I wanted to step out. Nightclubs, movie stars, glamour. But it didn't end up like that because he was shot, and then I didn't who know what to shot? do. And his name's Aubrey Nickel. He's the man who took me out to show me the club. Anyhow, after it happened, I ran. Why? Why? The publicity, of course. Mr. Marlowe, I'd lose my job. You see, I'm a school teacher. Yeah, you said that, honey. Now, look, where are you, Joan? The Tulip Room. It's a bar on Sunset and La Cienega Boulevard. You'll come right over, huh? Huh? Yeah, I'll come right over, huh? <laughs> Goodbye, Joan. Hey. Hey, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, but where are you? Over here in this booth. Hurry. Okay, hurry it is. Hello. Now, tell me why all the secrecy and you... Uh, oh. And what? What are you staring at? You? I expected braids, Joan. Horn rims, calico, maybe. <laughs> Not ice blue satin, draped, plunging, and, uh... Yes? Uh, yes. <laughs> Start at the top, honey, and slow this time, huh? Well, yesterday I met this man, this Aubrey Nickel I mentioned. Oh, he's really nice, Mr. Marlowe. He's a photographer, has a darling place up on the Sunset, uh... Sunset uh, Strip. Uh, you want that to have your picture taken? Uh-huh. I wanted something, well, something glamorous. That's easy. And look, look, here what I got. Oh, uh, by the way, I ordered a drink for you, a Scotch drink. Here. You like Scotch drinks, don't you? Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> Scotch drinks are my favorite drinks, Joan, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, now, isn't it wonderful? The picture, I mean. I'll say it is. I'd never say school teacher. No, that's the idea. Just like a model in a fashion magazine, isn't it? Aubrey took it from inside his photo shop while I was outside on the street looking in his window. You know, like a smart career girl just strolling along the avenue. Mm -hmm. And see how he faded out the background? That way I'm the, uh, the focal center. Focal center. Uh, isn't it nice? Oh, yes, it is, yeah. But look, Joan, the rest of the story. Now, the man was shot. You don't want publicity, remember? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Well... We made a date, Mr. Marlowe, for tonight. I was to be at his place, his shop on the strip at 8, which I was. But when I got there... He was gone. Well, oh, he might just as well have been for all the attention he paid to me. Huh? He had something on his mind. Acted as though he didn't even expect me. Why, I had to mention his picture here twice before he got it out of a drawer for me. But then, just like that, he changed. Said if I wanted glamour and nightclubs, why not? Oh, by all means, why not? And off we went to Cyrano's, no less, and sat at a table with two men and a woman who was actually Ermgard Fury... Actually, who? I'm Gartiri, the starlet. Oh. Don't you read the papers? Oh, golly, her picture's been in every theater section and magazine for the last six months. Of course, she hasn't made a movie yet, but she probably will. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ermgard Fury, she has red hair, a figure, lots of each, huh? Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, and so sweet to talk to. Well, believe it or not, when we were in the powder room and she couldn't find her lipstick, she used mine. Now, that's really democratic. <laughs> Look, uh, Joan, there was a shooting. You remember that. Now, you were sitting at a table with three men in this Ermgard uh, Fury? That's right. Uh, well, go on. What happened next? Well, when Miss Fury and I got back to the table, Mr. Lacey and his friend were gone. And then a minute later, Aubrey excused himself to make a phone call. And then? And then a waiter brought me a note from Aubrey which said I should go back to my hotel and wait there till I heard from him. Then it happened. Hmm. Look, Joan, if I'm going to help you on this, you've got to tell the whole coherent story. Well, uh. suddenly there were some shots, maybe from outside. And people were yelling. It was terrible. I was scared to death. And I ran outside. 
People were crowded around someone. It was Aubrey. He was dead. What'd you do then? I took the first taxi I could get to my hotel, the Beverly Crest. I started from my bungalow, but didn't go inside because, because there was a man hanging around. I'd seen him before someplace, and I didn't like his looks, and he turned away, and he called to me. Oh, he was awful, Mr. Marlowe. Awful looking like a frog, maybe? Sloping shoulders, bulging eyes? Yes, and when... Mr. Marlowe, how do you know what he looked like? Promise not to tell. Promise not to... Oh, Mr. Marlowe, he's here, isn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. Been watching us for quite a while. Oh, holy smokes, and I didn't get away from him. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, I had nothing to do with this shooting. What can I do? I simply can't be mixed up in this terrible business. Oh, please, Mr. Marlowe, I'll pay you anything only get me out of this, please. Uh, we'll talk about that later, Joni. Now, look, when we get up, keep talking and don't look away from me. Uh, then when we're outside and around the taxi stand there, duck away from me fast and get in close to the building and stay there till the frogman is gone. Uh, and head for your hotel bungalow and wait there till you hear from me. Now, you got that? Oh, yes, but... I don't understand why he's going to leave us. You will, if our little coup works. Come on. It played easier than I'd expected, because like a good shadow, the frogman gave us a small head start, which was all I needed. The second Joan darted away from me, I moved quickly up to the first cabin line, opened and slammed the rear door fast, said goodbye out loud to Joan, who was not in the back seat. Then slipped the driver five, winked hard, and practically shouted a very far away address at him. When he lurched in the curb, I stood there and waved a minute. It was what was still supposed to be Joan. Then, even as I saw the frogman dart across the street, pile into his own car and take off after the cab, I walked slowly back into the bar where I had another scotch drink and did some fast checking on the current location of Aubrey Nichols, which was the Dawson Memorial Hospital. Then I started outside for my car after stopping en route at the booth where Joan and I had been sitting to pick up a pair of gloves and glamour portrait. My new little client had left on the seat. <laughs> the school mom had been upset indeed. Dawson Memorial Hospital, Dr. Chambers. Yes, one moment, please. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Oh, I want to know the condition of a patient who was brought in here a little while ago, Mr. Aubrey Nickel. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We're not allowed to give out such information. You'll have to inquire at the superintendent's office. Sir, I wouldn't I'm... bother, Phil. Well, Detective Lieutenant Matthews, good evening. Good evening. Nickel is dead, Marlowe. We oh. did not get a statement from him. That's too bad. Any idea who did it? No. <clears throat> have you? Uh-uh. I didn't even know him. A client of mine. Yeah, uh... Mr. Smith. That's right. That's remarkable. Yeah, Mr. Smith, he asked me to inquire about his condition. Uh-huh. Well, it happened about an hour ago in an alley behind Cyrano's. Aubrey Nickel was a photographer up on the strip, but pretty much of a phony. A big front boy, strictly. That's all there was to it, huh? Walk down here with me a little. Oh, sure, sure. We figure there may be some connection between this shooting and Cy Nestor's death this afternoon. Nestor also had an office on the strip. What do you figure the tie-in is, Matthew? 